This episode talks about the sexual abuse of minors and may be upsetting to some listeners. Right now, in November 2020, I've spent just short of a year reporting on the survivors of Jeffrey Epstein. It's been hard to listen to what these women have gone through and how their abuse continues to affect them to this day. It's been especially hard because I have a feeling of what that's like. Reporting the story has made me face some of the darker moments in my own life that I try not to think about. Like Virginia, Courtney, and others, I know what it's like to feel powerless. I know this because when I was 16 years old, I was raped. That's how I lost my virginity. It upended my world and everything I knew. I struggled with the idea of telling my story on this podcast. This is about the victims of Jeffrey Epstein, not me. But through this year, I've met so many incredible women who have shown me that you can be a victim and be strong, that being abused is not shameful. Courtney Wilde helped me realize how much I had internalized the blame that our society pins on sexual assault survivors. I was doubting myself. I didn't want to regret this choice. So I asked her about it during our visit in Florida. I thought to myself, well, what are people going to think about me? You know, I was the White House correspondent for a network, and now people are going to think of me in a different way. And I didn't really want them to. Did you ever regret it? Did anyone ever say anything to you, like a family member or a friend saying, like, you shouldn't have said anything, or or there was a feeling where somebody knew too much about you and it made you feel horrible? Actually, so one of my best friends that I was friends with basically my whole life, well, when all this was, like, coming out, I, I told you I had this little voice inside me. It was like, keep on doing this, keep on doing this. So I remember I told her, like, hey, listen, I did this thing with ABC, and, um, you know, it's going to be on TV. And she was like, what? Like, why do you want that in your life? Like, that's in the past. Just let it go. Everybody's just, you know, I I try to keep a level head and look at both sides. And I understand that it happened a long time ago and it brings up feelings and stuff like that. But I guess it's a, it helps me when I talk about it. At the end of the day, it costs our friendship because I feel very strong about being an advocate for women who are abused and don't feel like they could come out and say anything. And I'm so strongly passionate about it that, It really did, it broke our friendship. But that's the thing about Courtney. She's been willing to lose it all for this fight because it hasn't been about her. She's always seen it as something bigger than her. It took me years to find that kind of courage. I was terrified to speak out as a teenager. When local police saw me crying on the beach afterward, I said nothing was wrong. I was so ashamed so scared at the idea of having my family go through all the drama of me filing a criminal complaint. I was panicked about everyone at my Catholic school knowing what had happened to me, of what they would say. As a 16-year-old, I didn't have the words to describe what I felt or even what had happened to me. I felt so alone, but the effects were real. I became depressed. I couldn't think clearly. I became obsessed with the SATs, of getting out of New Jersey, so obsessed that I accidentally filled all the answers to the test on the wrong page and then had to retake it. I didn't go to my homecoming dance. I cried for no reason, sometimes in front of people. I felt uneasy around men. I feared them. That took years to pass. Even when I finally went to get help, I was still scared about labeling what happened to me. When a therapist called my experience rape, I walked out of her office and never went back. 
For me, there was no model of a strong survivor. I thought if I accepted it, it would consume me. I know what it's like to blame yourself, to believe that you are responsible for the actions of your abuser, to want so badly to not feel weak, that you lie to yourself about how you were in control. I interviewed Courtney twice for this series, and after our first conversation, I did something I've been wanting to do for years. I told Courtney about it the second time we talked. I mean, you've certainly inspired me. I mean, if that means anything to you. Aww. No, really, yeah. I mean that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's what it's all about, you know? Yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I really, I really, really mean this. And I, like, recently took some action reaching out to a girl that I knew that I reached out to her, something I wanted to do for 10 years just a few days ago. Yeah, and she told me that there's probably six or seven other girls with the exact same story, which is crazy. When I finally called this woman earlier this year, she confirmed what I had suspected, that there were others whose lives had been transformed by this man. She said, I'm so sorry that happened to you. I would have said something, but there wasn't a Me Too movement then. People just didn't talk about it. One of the things I've struggled with the most is thinking of myself as a victim. I didn't want to be seen that way. But during my conversations with Courtney and other survivors, I've heard them say that keeping the trauma hidden gives it more power over you. It's not my dirty secret anymore. Everybody knows about it, and that's what happened to me, and I claim it, and I've gotten through it, and it's just freeing for me to say it out loud. A lot of the girls have come to terms with, hey, this happened to me too, and I'm not alone, and we stand in unity. It's just something so special. I made a big step for myself this fall. I talked about my assault publicly for the first time. And I'm not going to lie, it hasn't been easy. I told my story to Mary Claire magazine, and since it's made some conversations awkward. One family member said she wished I didn't share it. As I feared, and just as Courtney warned me, not everyone will support you. But some people said it meant a lot to them. They said they had a similar experience. And I realized how many people suffer silently. As hard as it was for me to talk about it, I don't want anyone to feel the way that I did, to feel like it's their fault. I was drawn to journalism as a check on power, as a way to hold our leaders to account. This show has helped me see my role differently. Typically, reporters are not supposed to be a part of the story. But in this case, as survivors shared their stories with me, I was inspired by their strength. It also made me feel like it was unfair to ask Virginia, Marika, Courtney, and Maria to share their own secrets publicly when I couldn't even tackle my own. In a way, by staying silent, I felt like I was keeping the stigma alive. Their openness helped me reframe the way I thought about my experience. And I hope my story does the same for someone else too. Maybe it will help us be a little bit more compassionate with others and ourselves. I could have used that 16 years ago. I'm Tara Palmieri, host of Broken Seeking Justice. I've been reporting alongside the survivors of Jeffrey Epstein in their quest for justice. 
Today on the show, we're looking forward. We're trying to figure out what does justice look like for the survivors now that Epstein is dead? And we're gonna talk through the Epstein Victims Compensation Program and a condition even a lawyer didn't notice. But first, I wanted to check in with two women who have kept the pressure on authorities, Virginia roberts Jufray and Marika Shartouni. You've heard from both of them this season. So many powerful people just want to keep them quiet, but they haven't backed down, despite setbacks. I brought them together to talk to me about how all of this has affected their lives. I wanted to know what it was like going public with their stories. Marika called in from Washington State and Virginia from Australia. I started the conversation by telling them why I decided it was the right time to share my story. After talking to both of you, um, it made me feel like I should talk about it for the first time. Tara, seriously? That's amazing. I'm so proud of you. Every time I hear um, that someone is ready to come forward, it, of course it hits you hard that another person's been abused, but to have that strength to speak out Jeez, Tara, I, I want to hug you right now. Oh, you're so sweet. That's Virginia roberts Jufray. I know how hard it is to share your story. And as soon as I started reporting the series, I was impressed by how open the survivors were with me. It seemed like such a thankless choice. So I asked Virginia and Marika, what made them decide to do it? Well, for me, personally, I felt it was my duty, my responsibility as a human being, as a mother, as a friend, as a daughter, as a wife, to speak up and tell people what happened. You know, that came out in a time period where people weren't really listening to victims at that time. It was a lot of victim shaming. And it really wasn't until Julie Brown broke the story and uh, it got the Me Too movement looking into Epstein. And it just all of a sudden exploded. But for me, it was my kids. Yeah. Virginia, you spoke out. You spoke out before Julie's piece came out. How did your life change? Going back to 2011, prior to speaking out, um, I never let anybody know my real name. And I created this facade that I was just a normal mom, a stay-at-home mom, raising three kids under five. And so when it came out, all of my friends were like, why didn't you tell us about this? We had no clue who you were. And it's like, because I didn't want to be judged on that past. I didn't know how I was going to be judged. A lot of people were using terms like prostitute. To me, I've never, I never was a prostitute. I was a kid mixed up with a lot of bad people, but I didn't think the world was going to see it that way. And a lot of people didn't see it that way. Um, so yeah, it was really hard. It definitely shook the foundation of my marriage, my my family life, my mom, my dad, my brothers. Um, everyone just kind of wanted it to go away and be swept under the rug. And I was the only one standing there saying, guys, we have to talk about this now. We, we don't have an option. Marika, I want to bring this over to you. I mean, can you tell me why you decided to speak out about what happened to you? You know, for me, it was... This was the thing I had to do. And I felt obligated to, because I have this platform, to speak out to help other survivors and other people who had been in situations like I had, where I hadn't unpacked this until 
19 years later, you know, and like I literally called the FBI and told them what had happened before I like even told my husband what happened. How else has coming forward affected your life, Marika? I mean, it has like my life hasn't been the same since, for sure. Definitely a lot more therapy, a lot more like explaining to my husband and the kids, okay, this is having like a little bit of a PTSD day and um, taking space for yourself. But I would say despite all the pain and despite all the work, it is better. So, Marika, you only realized that Epstein had this pattern of abuse in 2019 when he was arrested. How did that feel when you found out that you weren't the only one? I didn't know how big this was. All I knew was what happened with me and my recruiter. And, you know, it's hard to describe it. Like, okay, I'm not the only one. We all have these experiences. So it was almost validating in a way. Because, you know, you kind of had gaslit yourself for so long thinking, you know, it was your fault and you did it. And something was, you know, you brought this on yourself. Yeah. So, like, for me personally, one of the things that has made me fearful about coming forward is just having people close to me judge me or dismiss what happened or say, you know, they're being dramatic or who knows, you know. So it's like it's it's actually the people that are closest to me that I feared how they would react. Is that something you've had to grapple with, Virginia? Absolutely. I've been told by uh, very close family members to shut up, stop talking you know, it's embarrassing to them, uh, bringing shame upon the family. It makes them look bad. And, you know, that makes me sick to my stomach. Uh, no survivor should have to feel that way. No survivor. We, we've gone through hell and back. We deserve support. I know it's really hard, Tara, and, it, and it's going to continue to be hard. I'm not telling you this is an easy road at all. I'm I'm human. I have my bad days, but then I have really good days where I feel empowered because I, I get a, a message from somebody who says, you know, thank you for speaking out. I am now doing something about my abuse. So you take it as it comes, but you remember the bigger picture. We're not doing this just for ourselves. We're doing this for the world, and that's what matters. To be honest with you, if people are uncomfortable with it, it says a lot more about them than it does about me. And if they want to put that on me, I'm not going to hold it for them. And I'm not going to own it. And if, you know, it affects the relationship, I'm sorry. But it's, you know, there are some people that are ready to be open and accept and talk about this. And there's some people that aren't. And that's just how we are as people, really. Marika, since we first talked to you on the show, the woman who recruited you has come forward and is actually being represented by the same lawyers as you. So have your feelings about her changed during that time? I mean, they started with anger and now they've only moved to a point of like, I can't hold on to the past and can't hold on to the feeling of being betrayed. I mean, I've done a lot of work in therapy too. That has helped me tremendously get through this. There is so much anger and there's so much judgment and there's so much fear in this case. I don't want to add to that. That isn't to say that there shouldn't be justice. I'm talking about it for myself, for my own well-being. I have to make peace with what happened for myself. I have to forgive in order to, to free myself. 
Yeah. Richie, I wanted to ask you about launching your own advocacy organization. Why did you decide you wanted to do that? All I knew is I wanted to help people who are in my position. So I started uh, Victims Refuse Silence as a portal for people to find resources in their area all across the United States. And I'm creating a forum on my website for victims, for fathers, for mothers, for sisters, for brothers, for anybody who wants to know more about this world of sex slavery and how to help. Um, I can't wait to, to open up our first health and wellness center but in the time being and in the crisis that we're in, just setting up that form for people to be able to discuss what they've been through, that's the next step. So this question is for both of you. What has been the thing that has most helped you heal? Speaking out, telling my story over and over and over again, hoping if it only reaches one person in that audience, then my job is done. Like, I've, I've helped. So helping people to me, is a healing power. It it makes me think, you know, I can right so many wrongs by just sharing my voice. Well, for me, what's helped me, I mean, other than the simple ones of therapy, um, long walks, champagne, and connecting with all of my survivor sisters, especially in Virginia and talking to Maria a lot, um, is also been my own wanting to know and getting to the truth and doing my own, just investigating. And I just want to know why. (laughs) I think the world is ready for the truth. And the truth isn't pretty, but it's a start. Yeah. There's many layers to this truth. That's for sure. You can find out more about Virginia's organization, Victims Refuse Silence, at victimsrefusesilence.org. Coming up next a new program for Epstein survivors that started this year. Our team investigated what it offers victims and if the price for this path to justice is too high. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Spencer Coven is a lawyer who has been there from the very start. He's seen how Epstein evaded justice since the first investigation in Florida. Unfortunately, I've been in the room with him about three times. You've heard him on the show before. Coven represented the first Epstein victim in Palm Beach to report her story to the police. He took on more cases from women abused by Epstein, too. He watched Epstein's gilded journey through the criminal justice system and saw Epstein's fancy lawyers eviscerating his underage clients for years. Epstein's lawyers were trying to just embarrass and beat these young girls up in depositions. Coven said these lawyers would ask deeply invasive things about their sexual activity, 
He said Epstein's investigators sought out their ex-boyfriends, trying to dredge up details about the sexual desires and preferences of minors. Their records would be subpoenaed from Planned Parenthood or their gynecologist. They'd be asked if they'd ever had abortions. Coven found it all very sexist. One day, he turned the tables on Epstein. During a deposition, he came right out and asked him the sort of outrageous personal question his clients were forced to answer. He turned to Epstein and asked if it was true that he had an egg-shaped penis. It rattled Epstein. He tore his microphone off and stomped out of the room. He had a a massive superiority complex. He was an egomaniac. And uh, he was of the opinion that these girls were not victims and that they just knew what they were getting themselves into and he didn't care anything about any of them. Coven hated having to put his clients through those nasty cross-examinations. The girls hated it even more. It often made them regret suing Epstein in the first place. They were um, upset at the legal process. They were upset at how their lives were being destroyed by the defense attorneys on behalf of Mr. Epstein. So they directed me as their counsel to just get these cases settled for whatever amount we could get. And I feel that some of those girls undersettled their cases. And then, a decade later, Epstein's estate floated a new option. This new choice came from the executors of Epstein's estate, which is worth over half a billion dollars. They were offering a compensation fund for all the people who had suffered at the hands of the late pedophile. Compensation funds are not uncommon when there are a large number of victims. 9-11, Larry Nasser, Agent Orange, Catholic church abuse, and now Jeffrey Epstein. After Epstein's death, his estate was flooded with lawsuits. The fursuit was filed just four days after his suicide. The co-executors of his estate could see a future of unending litigation. But a fund would allow them to avoid years of legal battles. Plus, a source with knowledge of the decision told us it was the right thing to do. From the beginning, the Epstein Victims Compensation Program was presented as a non-adversarial way for victims to resolve their claims. The program was created with input from victims' lawyers. It was voluntary. They could opt out at any time. And it's confidential. No one applying to it has to worry about seeing their photo in the Daily Mail. Kuvin represents nine women who have submitted claims with the fund. We're told the program has received more than 60 claims since June. The fund really opens it up to um, all of the victims, ones that were afraid to come forward, ones that didn't come forward, girls whose claims would potentially be barred by the statute of limitations. Here's how the fund works. Survivors submit a statement describing their abuse and how the abuse impacted their lives. And they include documents that support their stories, like psychological records or the names of potential witnesses. Claims are processed by an independent third party. The administrator, Jordana Feldman, makes all the decisions about compensation. She determines how much money she thinks they're owed, whether their settlement should be in the thousands or the millions. She also interviews these applicants if they want to talk to her. They're not required to do so. Emotionally, it is, it's not easier than litigation because you have to relive it to a certain extent in order to tell your story but it is much easier than being cross-examined, I can tell you, by one of Epstein's lawyers. Coven says some of his clients have never shared their experiences before. Some of them have required therapy for having to relive some of this. Uh, they've had to go back to therapists because 
you know, now that they're telling their story for the first time, it involves things that they've never told anybody in their life. The fund is open to all victims of Epstein, including ones who've sued him before. Many of those women ended up walking away early with small settlements because the process was such a nightmare. Kuvin told us there's another reason he likes the fund. It's exactly the sort of thing Epstein would hate. I don't think that Epstein would have ever allowed such a fund to be created while he was alive. I mean, he would probably be repulsed by the idea that he's in any way helping these young girls. Still, there's an aspect of the fund we keep hearing about that feels right up Epstein's alley. It's an innocuous-looking clause lurking in the release portion of the fund's conditions. But when you read it closely, this clause makes clear this fund is no charity. Its goal? To safeguard the estate from legal action. The fund promises a lot, but if Epstein survivors want to accept the settlement, they have to agree they won't sue certain people. These are people they may want to go after, since they're often named in lawsuits against the estate. On this list of protected people? Anyone who ever worked for Jeffrey Epstein. People like former Epstein staffers Sarah Kellen, Leslie Groff, Nadia Marcinkova, Adriana Ross, and of course, Ghislaine Maxwell, who's accused of recruiting and sexually abusing countless children while working for Epstein. This list ensures people who faithfully served Epstein for years are now shielded from civil fallout. Some might refer to this group of people as enablers or co-conspirators. Some victims we spoke to say this feels like another version of the Florida non-prosecution agreement, which is, of course, widely seen as a miscarriage of justice. Those same people, Kellen, Groff, Marcinkova, and Ross, were all protected by name in that immunity agreement. And now, they're shielded here as well. Epstein's longtime lawyer, Darren Indyke, and accountant Richard Kahn, who are also the co-executors of his estate, are protected too. These men, whose idea it was to create the fund, are protected by their own special clause in the release, saying they can't be sued. To us, this feels like Epstein wielding control from beyond the grave. Or as Marika put it, The language that this document is made up of seems to only protect a lot of the other co-conspirators, and it just seems to benefit the lawyers. Survivors we've spoken to are livid about this condition because they see this as Epstein's estate going out of its way to protect enablers and co-conspirators, protecting the people who allegedly allowed Epstein to operate as he did, who made this large-scale sexual predation possible. One woman we've spoken to repeatedly described the release as neutering victims and depriving them of what she saw as an important right, to hold those closest to Epstein accountable. She said the condition turned Epstein into a fall guy, while the network of people who facilitated or participated in his abuse were left alone. The bad thing is that this list covers all Epstein's employees. But the good thing is that the list only covers Epstein's employees, not any of the alleged perpetrators he counted as friends. So any survivors who want to sue associates, like Alan Dershowitz, Bill Richardson, Prince Andrew, and others, can go for it. None of those powerful men can claim that Epstein made them do anything, and all of them deny all Epstein-related allegations against them. 
Kuvin was concerned when he learned about this so-called third-party carve-out. There should be absolutely no push to advocate on behalf of any potential co-conspirator that may still be alive. The only thing that the fund should be focused on is fairly compensating victims. That is it. That should be their sole focus, not any potential release of co-conspirators that they don't represent. We asked the Epstein Victims Compensation Program about this. A spokesperson told us the designers and administrators of the fund played no part in hashing out the terms of the release. So we asked Epstein's estate, and they were defensive. In an email, a lawyer for the estate dismissed the assertion that they were intentionally shielding co-conspirators, saying nothing could be further from the truth. The attorney said the language in the release doesn't stop the government from criminally prosecuting anyone. And any survivor filing a claim with the fund can specify people they might want to sue someday. The fund will accept any name, so long as it doesn't appear on the list of protected people. He said if the estate didn't shield Epstein's many staff from lawsuits, the estate would be stuck in legal limbo forever, as staff who had been sued by survivors then sued the estate to recoup their own losses. And it's not a crazy concern. Ghislaine Maxwell did just that in March. Coven told us he found that reasoning, that the estate was looking for closure, ridiculous. The estate may be in an endless loop of lawsuits, but it's all lawsuits that are created by the evil of Jeffrey Epstein and his co-conspirators. So in my world of litigation and lawsuits, good. It should be an endless dispute of lawsuits forever to remind anyone that wants a piece of that estate that it's dirty money at the end of the day and it's going to be tied up into infinity and beyond. I should also make clear There are parts of the release that aren't controversial, that people are very pleased with. These women can talk about their settlement. They can disclose the amount if they want to. They can talk about the abuse, which is not common in civil settlements. And of course, the fund is voluntary. Any of these women can decide to stop the claims process or not accept their payout. But one survivor told us she didn't feel like there was much of a choice. Either too much time has passed and they can't file lawsuits, she said or they feel pressure to settle with the fund, either from the estate or their own lawyers. One plaintiff's attorney has claimed lawyers with the estate bullied his client because she refused to drop her lawsuit and go with the fund. He complained in court papers that estate lawyers repeatedly reminded his client she was the only one not in the fund, belittling her and threatening him with sanctions. He wrote, They have done everything they can to make these cases as difficult as possible for the victims, so the victims feel like they have no choice but to submit to the fund. The rep for the estate's co-executors called the allegations of bullying nonsensical and denied the notion that survivors were without choice. He noted that claimants are free to turn down the amounts offered by the fund and pursue legal action. He added, Tellingly, not a single claimant has elected to do so. So, those choices are either submit to the rules of the fund or roll the dice and file a lawsuit. The Epstein Victims' Compensation Program never presented itself as salvation. But it felt like the easiest possible path for victims seeking closure in the wake of Epstein's death. And then, like everything related to Jeffrey Epstein, there are strings attached. For some people, it will be the right option. For others, it's a less satisfying choice. Because settling with the fund 
feels like accepting the way the estate has protected people who are alleged to have enabled and even participated in Epstein's abuse. The fund feels like a metaphor for Epstein's journey through the criminal justice system. His interests always win. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. In the United States, crime victims have just two choices. Criminal justice and civil justice. But as we've seen in the Epstein case, it's really hard for victims to get the criminal justice system to work for them. Survivors of Epstein's abuse were denied criminal justice in 1996, when Maria Farmer first reported Epstein to the authorities. They were denied criminal justice in 2006, when the state attorney's office scuttled the case. They were denied criminal justice in 2007, when the feds folded to power, declined to prosecute Epstein, and shut out the victims. They were denied criminal justice again in 2007, when the secret non-prosecution agreement was signed. They were denied criminal justice in 2008, when Epstein was allowed to plead to a nothing charge. They were denied criminal justice in 2016, when the SCNY declined to prosecute Epstein. And they were denied criminal justice in 2019, when Epstein died in custody. Not to put too fine a point on it, when I say criminal justice, I don't mean a broad, nebulous definition of justice. I mean the satisfaction that comes from seeing your abuser in jail. So these women are left with civil justice, which is very different. Spencer Kubin says this is how he describes it to a jury. Lady Justice holds the scales in one hand and she holds a sword in the other. And those scales are there to weigh and mete out justice. And a mere tipping of the scales is all that is necessary for Lady Justice to use that sword to enforce, ultimately, money justice. Although it can't throw anyone in prison, civil justice can force defendants to pay for their actions, literally. Money justice means that the amount of compensation that you provide to these victims is fair enough and large enough that the victims can look at it and say, justice has been done. And it can hand down moral judgments. So while the civil justice system can't put someone behind bars, it certainly can tell a very strong story about who is right and who is more likely than not wrong. When criminal justice fails, Money justice is all these women have left. But it doesn't come easily. Because money justice comes with a stigma. From the beginning, Jeffrey Epstein dismissed his victims as women who just wanted money. And once they took the money, he and society shamed them. 
Courtney Wilde told me this was one of the things that haunted her for years. And with the whole Epstein thing, it's like the big pink elephants in the room because it's like with a dollar sign on it, you know? Are you doing this for money? Like, I'm just like so sick of the money thing, you know what I mean? Like, I'm just so over it. Many people read a story about lawsuits or settlements and automatically assume these women are money-grubbing opportunists who were simply there to take advantage. This obviously isn't a new phenomenon, and it's not unique to this case. This response has been used to discredit survivors forever. But the civil system is important, in this case and in many others. Right now, that's the only option for many of these women. Women who have seen the criminal justice system fail them. And when criminal justice fails, it's especially important to talk about civil damages. For some women, lawsuits are not an option because their assaults fall outside of the statute of limitations for civil claims. Those women never expected to see money justice, for there to be a compensation fund. That alone is a lot to process. They accepted it. Maybe they got excited. And then, like whiplash, the list of protected people emerged. This list isn't their only concern, though. Virginia told us about another letdown. I've heard from some of the survivor sisters that they feel that they've been cheated out of some of the money that they deserved more. Their scars were worth more. The amounts given out have been described to us by multiple people as low. In at least one instance, we've heard a woman receive just $20,000. The number feels alarming, given the vastness of Epstein's estate. For comparison's sake, victims of Catholic church abuse received around $200,000 on average, and there were many more of them. Only one person has told us they were pleased with their offer, though they declined to say how much they received. I'm grateful that they did set up a victim's compensation for us. You know, it's just, it, it is sad to think that some of these women who went through so much trauma are coming out unhappy with the outcome of it. When we asked about actual settlement numbers, a spokesperson for the fund told us the program looks at every case on their merits based on the specific facts and circumstances presented. The reality is, so many claims haven't even been processed yet, so it's hard to know what the fund is planning as far as payments to others. The fund will only accept claims until early 2021, or until the money runs out. Money does not undo what happened to these women, but for those whose lives were derailed, it can help. As Virginia puts it, It might provide money for us to go get therapy and live an easier life, but the money doesn't make the scars go away. But money is also a symbol. For the survivors of Jeffrey Epstein, money can symbolize so many things. Accountability, acknowledgement, and it can symbolize closure. This story is not closed. It's not over. In fact, it's far from over. The one thing we hear over and over again is that all these women want is for Jeffrey Epstein's enablers and co-conspirators to be held accountable. The people that participated in the abuse, the people that enabled it, the people that funded it, I'm sorry, they still have not been brought to accountability and their reckoning is coming. Every survivor we've talked to for this series has made it clear they don't think the government has done enough. Yes, Ghislaine Maxwell's in custody. Yes, 
that investigation is allegedly ongoing. Yes, the U.S. Virgin Islands is conducting its own investigation. And yes, people across society are waking up to the fact that men in positions of power have used that power to abuse others. But what these women want is to stop feeling like they're working against the government. They want all the people who made this possible to be held to account, to share what they know, to step up. This is why Virginia came forward in 2011. I had had enough. Nothing was going anywhere. We got this ridiculous payout from Epstein for abusing us. As we all know, money does not heal those scars. Accountability helps big time. Um, And there was no accountability. It was just shut up and take the money. This isn't a story about Jeffrey Epstein's perversions. It's a story about how the social and justice system in our country allowed a predator like Jeffrey Epstein to operate openly and then to escape justice. It's a story about how checks on that power, like survivors speaking out, can make a dent in that narrative of rich people getting away with horrible crimes. The world never would have learned about these injustices if survivors like Virginia didn't make the difficult decision to go public. Every story, every bit of breaking news, it's because there was a woman who made the conscious choice to sacrifice her privacy, her comfort. Every ounce of change is because a survivor talked. Alexander Acosta stepped down as labor secretary because they talked. Jeffrey Epstein was arrested because they talked. Ghislaine Maxwell is awaiting trial because they talked. There's a proposed amendment to the Crime Victims' Rights Act because they talked. I've spent hours with Virginia over the last year, asking her about her past, talking about the future. And even after all that time, she wants the same thing from when we first started talking. We're in a new era. We are evolving. We are not accepting this as a norm anymore. And I love that. I love that we're finally using our voices. We're protesting. We're saying, hell no. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care what seat you sit in, in Congress or in a palace or wherever the case may be. We want accountability. To learn more about the Epstein Victims Compensation Program, go to epsteinvcp.com. That's E-P-S-T-E-I-N-V-C-P.com. If you or someone you know has been a victim of sexual violence, there is help available. Search for RAIN, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, or go to their website at rainn.org. If you'd like to support survivors of sexual abuse, please consider making a donation to RAIN at fundraise.rain.org slash broken. Broken Seeking Justice is produced by Three Uncanny Four Productions. Our show is produced by Krista Ripple and Jennifer Siegel. This episode was reported by Emily Saul, with help from me. Casey Holford composed our theme, and this episode was mixed by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners. 
Will Tavlin fact-checked this episode. Rachel B. Doyle is our editor. Our special correspondent and executive producer is Julie K. Brown. Our other executive producers are Adam Davidson, Laura Mayer, Adam McKay, and Kevin Messick. Thanks to our lawyer, Samuel Bayard, and a very special thanks to Virginia Roberts Dufre, Courtney Wilde, Marika Shartuni, Maria Farmer, and Michelle Lakata for being so generous with their time and sharing their stories. For Broken, I'm Tara Palmieri. <laughs>